may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Robert, and I'm the pastor here at Mercy House. We are finishing up the path to paradise. We're getting you to paradise. So, uh, those of you that have been with us uh, through this series, you know that we began in the Garden of Eden. We said we were created in and for paradise. But when humans sinned against God, they broke relationship with God, they found themselves in paradise lost. Yet, God immediately began executing a plan to get us back to paradise. We've tracked that plan throughout the different covenants of the Old Testament. Uh, We said that covenants were agreements that God would make with human beings that resulted in relationship with Him. But every one of those covenants seemed to not quite get us to the ultimate fulfillment. And we said that uh, all those covenants were fulfilled in Jesus, right? And those of us that have received Christ, received His forgiveness by faith, and have been indwelt by the Spirit, like we, we get a glimpse, at least, of that paradise. Like life is better in Christ, absolutely. We have a great amount of hope that's been given to us. We have power over sin. We have a clean conscience because we've been forgiven by grace. We, we have community with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and so there's a lot of good things to, to, to give thanks to God for in this uh, time in, in our lives, yet we long still for something more. We still are, are suffering. Even if, if we're a Christian and we're experiencing some of these good gifts from God, we still struggle. We still uh, long. We still struggle faithful to be faithful in continuing in our relationship with God, just continue in communion with Him. We, we struggle uh, from falling back into despair or pride or, or falling back into certain sins that, that threaten to enslave us or uh, those sins spilling out into our relationships and struggling in relationships, even relationships with other Christians, sometimes especially in relationships with other Christians. And so there, there's still a longing in us, even if, if we're a Christian, we're longing for a paradise, and that is a biblical longing. Because we are living in this gap between Christ having come the first time and provided salvation through the cross, but also waiting for Christ to come the second time and ultimately fulfill His new covenant. And this is what we're looking at today, Revelation 21. Uh, If we had time, we'd look at 22 as well, the last chapter in the Bible. But those two chapters really give you uh, a vision, a picture of the paradise that... uh, we were made for. So, what we're going to look at is what that paradise is, and in part, the way it's communicated, it's just an overwhelming amount of images and symbols, and I think it's, you know, there's a reason for that. It's supposed to feel overwhelming. It's just sort of like a fireworks display just coming off the pages. Um, And then we'll try try to give some summary statements after we've kind of looked at the fireworks uh, we'll give, give a few little summary statements. So that would be in the what is the paradise. And then consider, okay, in light of that paradise that I'm headed for, how do I, how do I live now? Right? How do I live with this perspective that I'm headed to paradise? So that's, that's the, the gist of the, the sermon today. So background, the book of Revelation, it's written by the Apostle John. Uh, he's writing this when he is on the island of Patmos. He is literally on a prison island. He's been in prison because... 
He's a Christian because he's trying to spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, and they've imprisoned him there for, for, for all we know. For what we know is he probably died there, right? So he's under intense persecution. Uh, he's being given this vision to, to send to these seven churches that are all in modern-day Turkey. They're all experiencing persecution. They're all struggling. And so uh, John, the writer, and these churches that received this letter originally, none of them are feeling like they've made it to paradise, they all are, are living in uh, the gap. Uh, and so it's also helpful for us as well because we live in that same gap. Also, Revelation is known as apocalyptic literature. Uh, so it deals with the end times and it's highly symbolic. All right. So it's always usually apocalyptic literature. It's dealing with end times and it's highly symbolic. So you kind of need a, a, a decoder ring to figure out what it's talking about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to help you as much as I can. There'll be some rocks that I, can't ha- I don't have time to look under, and you'll say, well, what does that mean? And if you want to talk about it later, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about this, but we'll try to decode some of these symbols, all right? So let's take a look. Revelation 21, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, look up on your phone. I, I'm not going to put it up on the uh, screen, partly because it's so much of it. So Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, so already we've, we're two verses in, we've got three images that are kind of mushed together. And they're all communicating different things to us about this paradise that is to come. So the new heaven and new earth. So it's hearkening back to the opening chapters of Genesis where God creates the heavens and the earth. So it's letting, letting us know that, that, that God is going to recreate. He's going to renew. He's going to restore the heaven and earth that He originally created that fell because of human sin and that there's going to be a continuity from old, old heaven, old earth, and new heaven, new earth. It, there's going to be some similarities. There's going to be some parallels. We are going to live in a physical, material world. Sometimes people, they, they talk about heaven like we're going to be in these sort of, uh, like we're going to be angels with wings or we're going to be like these spirits that are just kind of floating around on clouds and all that stuff. That, that is all just kind of cartoonish, cultural stuff. That's not really... Uh, in the Scriptures. What the Scriptures is teaching is it's going to have some similarities to our life now. We're going to be in physical bodies, but those bodies will be resurrected and we'll be in a completely renewed and restored uh, heaven and uh, earth. Uh, Then the other, one of the other things about that new creation, he says there's no sea, right? There's no ocean. Uh, and so that's symbolic. I don't know if it necessarily means that there's not going to be any oceans in the new heaven and new earth, but it's symbolic in that in the ancient world, open water represented chaos. And so even in the, in the creation account, when God hovers over the water, so kind of the chaos of the waters, and then He says, let there be light. He says, let there be this or that, right? So He brings order out of the disorder of the chaotic waters. So here, we're back to a place that has no disorder. It has no chaos. God has returned us to that place that we were originally in, in uh, the opening chapters 
of Genesis. So then we have the, the, the second image is the new, the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Um, and notice that it's coming down. Right? Heaven is coming down. And, and this is the reintegration of heaven and earth. Right? That's where we were when we were in the created order, when we were created in paradise. Heaven and earth were integrated. But because of sin, it was disintegrated. Right? We were separation. Now it's reintegrated. We're back in union again with heaven. Right? And the, the, the idea of, of the city of Jerusalem uh, is both where the king resided and where the temple was. So you had the rule of God through the king, and you had the presence of God in the temple. And so this, this, is, this is what this new Jerusalem coming down is representing, the rule of God and the presence of God coming back into contact uh, ultimately with uh, the world. Um, so when we as Christians, we're praying like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're acknowledging that there's a gap, right? We're longing for that gap to, to be reintegrated. And so, yes, we're praying that God would do something in our midst when we pray that, but we're also praying, Lord Jesus, just come, just bring your kingdom, bring, bring your kingdom down and restore this world. Uh, come, Lord Jesus, right? So then there's the, the city is like a bride. So here's another image. that is throwing images at you. Adorned for her husband. So when a bride comes down the aisle, this is a the big moment, a big reveal. This is just my bride 27 years ago. Uh, this is what I saw coming down the aisle. And it is such a, it's such a powerful moment. Um, and so as a pastor, I've seen this moment so many times, right? And, and the bride comes around and comes down the aisle, and then I'm look, I usually try to look at the groom, right? And, and if he hasn't seen her, now sometimes they do this sneak peek thing and all this stuff, but, but, but a lot of times they haven't seen the dress, they haven't seen her adorned, right? And they see her, and it's just this moment of glory, right? And so this is what's being described here. Now, the bride is always uh, the people of God, right? The people of God. And, and, and so you have the people of God living in the city of God under His rule and in His presence. That's what you got going on. you got the bride picture. You've got the city picture of Jerusalem. It's the presence and power, the, the authority of God, and the people of God living under that authority and in His presence. Right? Um, and and the, the church is in its glorified state. Right? It says she's adorned. Right? She's without blemish. She's perfect. Right? Up to that point, she was justified, so she was, she was forgiven and brought into a relationship with Jesus from that point forward. Uh, she was also in a process of being sanctified, right? being made more like Christ. But in this moment, she's made to finish line. She's absolutely, by God's grace, glorified. And so now that the people of God are adorned, they're living in the city of God under God's good rule and in His presence, and this is paradise. This is paradise. And then John hears this loud, authoritative voice, uh, which in apocalyptic literature is like this, uh, this, this um, sign of this, this is important, this is absolute, this is truth. Um, and so he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. 
This, this should sound familiar. Right? All throughout these covenants, we've been hearing this same theme. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. It's here that it's ultimately fulfilled. We heard it when he made a covenant with Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 17? I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So just that, that theme of you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. In Exodus, the, the covenant with Moses, same kind of verbiage. Uh, he, God says to, to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. First Kings 8, we have the covenant with David and and uh, the, the kind of sealing of that covenant when Solomon builds this temple and he brings the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments are in it and the presence of God is kind of symbolized in that. He brings it into the temple and it says there was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel. And when they came out of the, the, the land of Egypt and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. There, there he comes near in this manifestation of his glory. He shows up. He comes down. And then Israel is exiled. It looks like the whole plan has been completely trashed. And God sends these prophets to encourage Israel and to remind them that he has not forgotten his promises. Prophets like Isaiah, who uh, said this in Isaiah 7, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And then 700 years later, we see, the, see Matthew, the gospel writer, picking up that prophecy, speaking about the birth of Jesus at Christmas. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is always the heart of God, is, is this Emmanuel principle. God wants to dwell with His people. He was dwelling with us in the garden in creation that was broken, and He has been steadily unfolding a plan to get us to where He is ultimately dwelling with us. Again, this is paradise. This is paradise. And, and the result of God dwelling with His people is all this cool stuff, right? Revelation 21, uh, verse 4, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There's no reason for tears. There's no reason for mourning. We can't even conceive of that. We can't even conceive of that. Hey, we're living in this gap. And we have a lot of hope and a lot of joy and a lot of comfort and a lot of strength from the Holy Spirit. But man, we still are mourning. We're still grieving. We're still feeling the pain of being in this paradise 
lost. And it's saying there is, is coming a time where there will, won't even be a reason to cry. And, and so sin and sin's effects have been dealt with, right? I mean, it, it says death will be no more. We've been talking a lot about death being the, the breakdown of all these relationships, right, between God, self, others, and earth. And that's all being reunified. Those, that, those relationships are all being uh, restored. Notice that Satan is not in that chapter, right? Satan is, he's dealt with. So sin and Satan have been dealt with. And they're never coming back. They're, they are never coming back. Uh, it's saying that the former things have passed away and that they're gone. And how did all this happen? God did it. God did it. Behold, he says, I am making all things new. God did it. 100% God. Right? He's the one that brings this uh, paradise. Uh, now, you may be thinking, how can I get in on this? Like, that sounds pretty good. I, <laughs> I'd like to get in on that. How do I do that? So, different people, different, different folks that profess to be Christians, profess to be churched people, say some different things about this. So, some would say, well, uh, this new paradise is for everybody. Everybody's going to be there, whether you know it or not, whether you care or not, whether you receive Christ by faith or not. It's just something that's, that everyone's going to end up there, Right? Uh, while others are like, well, it's for those that really try hard, and they really try to be holy, and they do the right stuff, and they kind of go across some kind of line where they're holy enough to where they get to go to the, the good place. Right? Neither one of those is biblical, okay? And I think even in this text, I mean, I can point to many texts, but even in this text, we see that that's not the case. It's not a, it's for everybody, whether you know it or not, or you've got to earn this thing. Like, that, it's not in there. Here's what, what, what is said here. Uh, back half of verse 5, also he said, write this down. Okay, so this is another one of those apocalyptic things where he's like, this is important, right? For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So he lets them know again, God's in charge of this. He's like, I, I'm the beginning, I started this thing, and I'm the end. I'm going to finish this thing. It is God. God is the one making all things new. But then he, he says, here's how this thing's going to work. This salvation that, that, that's being described here, I'm giving it away free. I'm giving it away free. And the ones that are thirsty, the ones that admit their thirst, the ones that admit their acute need for Christ, the living water, they will receive that living water. And so it's, it's, it's not everybody goes there. It's not you try really hard and you earn. It's neither one of those. It's actually you receive by faith the free gift that's being offered, this living uh, water. Notice that he talks about um, inheritance. I will be his God and he will be my, my son uh, uses the word son because in the ancient world, the son is the one getting the inheritance. So it definitely includes both sons and daughters, right? for, for, for spiritually speaking. And so, again, do you earn an inheritance? No. 
An inheritance is given to you freely, and it's given to you because of your identity. It's because you are part of a family, and that inheritance comes to you as a free gift. And this is what he's describing. He's saying because of, of an identity shift where sinners, by grace through faith, become sons and daughters, they receive this, this living water as a free gift. And so the, the, the way in is admittance of that need and receiving that by a faith. Some are not going to receive this water. And it's described there in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Right? And so these, this is descriptors of those that are not in paradise. Now, I, I don't think this is like a, an exhaustive list. If you're like, okay, I'm not that one, I'm not that one, I'm not, I think I'm good, like, Probably you couldn't get to that list, actually. Um, so, but look what's, what, what he's doing there is, is he's characterizing them as murderers, not just somebody who committed a murder. There will be people who have committed a murder and were forgiven that are in heaven, that are sons and daughters of God, okay? But, but he's, he's talking more, more, not just about sins committed, but about an identity. Because whatever it is that you worship, that tags your identity. It, it, it forms your identity. If you're a, a worshiper of God by the grace of the gospel, you're a son, you're a daughter. But, but, but if you don't turn from that sin, it, it, it signifies that, no, that's not your identity. Your identity is actually a murderer. It, you're identified by your sin and the thing that you worship. And, and the result is this lake of fire. Now, uh, you know, we, we use this text to kind of come up with this cartoonish description of hell, like you're going to burn in hell and all this kind of stuff. I don't really think that's what's going on here. Uh, again, it's highly symbolic. And so you have two images of chaos being coupled together. You have water, which we talked about earlier, open water being this kind of sign of chaos. But now you have fire, which is yet another sign of chaos and destruction. So, so, the, so this ultimate symbol of disintegration of all those relationships, right? The disintegration of relationship with God, self, others, earth, except now this is in an eternal state. And he calls it the second death, and again, I've been using that word death for that ultimate disintegration, right? And he says, everybody's going to experience this first death, right? Which is the disintegration of body and soul. But this second death of eternal disintegration, this is going to be experienced by those who've rejected the grace of the gospel, right? So not everyone's going to be there. And the reason is because they haven't received this free gift. So my question to you this morning is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Have you come to that realization of your acute need for the grace of the gospel? Not just your need for a little compartment of religion in your life that helps you, but as a thirsty human who's, who's, who's tried everything and just has come to this place where you, the only thing that's going to quench the thirst of my soul is Jesus and receive that. And Jesus uses all kinds of paths to get you to that place of acknowledgement of thirst. It, it, it could be, you could be far, far from the church, never been in church. You could have been in church all your life. 
I mean, there's some folks in this room, most likely, that have been in the church. They've never come to that place of acknowledgement of that thirst. They like church. They like church people. They like the positive atmosphere. They like the music. It encourages them. It's, it's a nice compartment of their lives. But they've never come to that place of realizing that, that need for Christ to quench the thirst of their souls. Receive that today. Admit that thirst. Receive it today. Jesus is eager to meet that need. I love this little story with, with, with the woman at the well. And he's talking to her and uh, having this really cool spiritual conversation. And, and uh, he says to her, uh, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Such a beautiful moment between him and the woman at the well, him saying, I would love to give you this living water. It's free. Ask for it. Receive by faith this living water of the gospel. So he, he then drills down into the city a little more. I'm going to try to move through this a little more quickly. Uh, but he talks about construction design, construction materials, things that seem to be missing, and activities that are occurring in the city. So construction design, construction materials, things that seem to be missing in the city, and activities that are occurring. So construction design, Revelation 21, 9 through 14, uh, we see again heaven coming down. So keep that, that image of, of heaven coming down, not us going to heaven. There's a great wall around the city. That indicates security, absolute security. There's no sense of insecurity, uh, any threat. There's this high wall that's, that's very secure. But then there's lots of gates, and they're always open. And again, communicating there's access to the city, but there's no fear. You never close the gate. What, the only reason you close the gate of a city is because you're afraid. And so at night, an ancient city would have closed down the gates, put a guard there. And there's, there's, there's no fear of any threat. All threats have been put down. And now they live, live in absolute perfect safety and security. The 12 gates have the t- names of the 12 tribes of Israel over them. And then the 12 foundations under the city have the names of the 12 apostles. And so what you have is the people of God being represented in the city. The Old Testament people of God who faith forward towards Christ. The New Testament people of God that faith backwards to Christ and what He did on the cross. And there's a continuity between this Old Testament people and New Testament people. And you, you hear the Apostle Paul talking about this um, places like Ephesians 2, he's, he's talking to the church, and he's saying, So then you, church, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So he's, he's saying, church, you're part of this long legacy of the people of God throughout the Old Testament into the New. And then he says that that church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so apostles and prophets, New Testament, Old Testament. And he's saying, church, you are the people of God. And you're built on the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are all about Jesus. He is the cornerstone. 
He is the foundation that's being revealed in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. This is what we've been communicating throughout this whole sermon series. Is this continuity between Old Testament and New Testament, all landing on Jesus, all moving toward this ultimate fulfillment of us back in paradise. Um, The angel um, measures the city. It's kind of weird, right? Uh, you find out it's a really big cube, a really big cube. Like 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. That's a big city. So it's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. So I googled what 1,400 miles west of here is, and I found that it's, it, it's Lincoln, Nebraska. So to drive across the city would be like driving to Lincoln, Nebraska. That's a long drive, folks. I mean, it probably says how many hours. 21 hours, 32 minutes. Um, I don't really think the point is that it's a certain amount of miles, but, but it does help you understand that 12,000 stadia is really big, right? It's really big. But, but why is a cube, right? Well, it's the Holy of Holies, uh, it's how the Holy of Holies, so in the, in, in the tabernacle, in the temple, you had this, most, this innermost place where the presence of God resided, the, the, the most holy place. It's a cube. So everyone is residing in the Holy of Holies. Everyone is residing in the most holy place. There's no separation. There's no separation. Um, and it's really big, which communicates that there's room for all of the people of God, Old Testament and New. I looked it up. I thought, well, maybe it's about the size of Texas, right? It's way bigger than Texas, okay? <laughs> Paradise is bigger than Texas, so um, that's because I'm from Texas. That's why I look up Texas. Okay, so, so that's construction design. Now, construction materials, um, they are, it, the foundations are adorned with every kind of jewel, and then it goes on this whole list of of lots of shiny jewels. And so it's communicating a couple things. So one is light. These jewels are reflecting and refracting light. Uh, earlier in the chapter, it says that the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And so it's communicating the glory of God. And so, usually when you're talking about the glory of God, you talk about two things. You talk about light, and you talk about worth or weight. And so, both of these are being communicated. Light, that's dispelling darkness, it's cleansing, it's illuminating. This, the glory of God is, is doing that, but it's also, it's worth a lot, right? It's weighty. And so, the glory of God is just emanating out of this. These streets of gold, you may have wondered about, like, really is gold like the best use of, you know, for street material, like what's going on there. Um, but the Holy of Holies uh, had gold as the flooring in the temple. The priests were standing on gold as they were ministering in those inner places of the temple. We're in the, we're in the inner place. We're in the Holy of Holies. We're dwelling in uh, the, the presence of God. So that's designed, that's some some of the construction materials, and then number three, there's things that are missing that John notices. Uh, verse 22, 
I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Right? And so what's missing? There's no temple, there's no light-bearing bodies. Uh, there's no temple because there's no need for any mediation between God and human beings. There's no need for a priest to mediate between God and human beings. There's no need for a sacrifice to be offered. That sacrifice has already been offered. Christ on the cross, once for all. That's why it keeps calling Him the Lamb. It keeps calling Him the Lamb over and over, pointing to His sacrificial death on the cross. So there's no need for mediation. Uh, and, and then this whole light thing, right? It's, 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 again, it's pointing back to glory, that the Father and the Lamb are, are emanating glory. And, and he's saying that their glory is most greatly shown in the gospel. Because this is why he's calling Jesus the Lamb. He's trying to draw attention to the fact that Christ laid down his life at the cross. And so this is what's bringing light to the new heaven, the new earth, the new city, the bride adorned. So uh, that's the things that are missing. And then activities within the city. Because uh, you've got 24-7 light, right? So there's a lot, a lot of time to do stuff, right? And so here's what we see happening. By its light, verse 24, notice that, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. This is what those gates are for. People are coming into those gates, the people of God from the nations, and they're bringing offerings that are for God's glory and for His praise. Uh, everything that's been produced culturally that's glorifying to God, everything that's produced academically that's glorifying to God, everything that, 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 that's been produced artistically, uh, industrially, uh, all those things, all those human endeavors, all those things that, that God kind of set on a course to, to say, you know, rule and subdue the earth, all those things that are God glorifying are being brought into that city and they're being offered up as glory to God. And it's like this positive feedback loop because you, you see this glory, you offer up this, this glory to God and then it causes you to praise Him and to have joy in Him. And then that causes there to be more realization of the glory of God and then more joy and praise and more realization of the glory of God and on and on it goes for eternity because God is infinite. So we're going to need a whole lot of time to behold His worth, right? His light, and to praise Him and to glorify Him. This is paradise. Uh, to sum it up, so there's a lot of, lot of imagery, a lot of stuff coming at us, uh, at least three things that is, are being communicated. So one is God is dwelling with His people. That's the paradise that we're headed for. Number two, God has remedied sin and reversed all of its effects, a.k.a. death. There's no more death. He's remedied sin. The Lamb's death on the cross has have remedied sin, and that has reversed all of sin's effects. And then number three, we, the people of God from the nations, are in perfect fellowship with God, with others, with ourselves, 
with the earth, spending all of our days glorifying God, beholding Him, praising Him in this eternal feedback loop and fellowship with one another. This is paradise. Whether you know it or not, this is what your heart is longing for. This is what we are longing for. Even if we're a Christian and we're, we're living in the gap here, we, we're longing for this ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in the covenants. So how do you, how do you apply this? A uh, couple different ideas. There's a lot of ways you could apply this, but, but one, if you're not yet a Christian, to receive that living water by faith this morning. To receive that, to admit your thirst that nothing else is going to quench your thirst. Not, not the almighty dollar, not a human relationship, not, not some kind of uh, success in your academics or your vocation. N- none of these things are going to quench the thirst of your soul. Admitting Christ, He is the living water that you need today. And to receive that as a free gift. It's free. It's not something you have to work for or uh, try, try to, to, to do a whole bunch of stuff to earn. It's free. But it does require that you admit your need for it and to receive it uh, by faith. We've had a, a number of people this semester that have, have experienced that. It's so fun. It's such a joy to see people who have, have made that turn, to turn away from sin and to become sons and daughters of God and experience a living water that's found in Christ. But what if you are a Christian? What do you do with this information? Right? So couple things. So one is there's hope while we live in the gap. There's hope while we live in the gap. If you've got health issues, you're kind of living in the gap, and, 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 and you know, God, God will at times, by His grace and His power, He will heal you now. Right? But he, when He does that, He actually is trying to whet your appetite for the life to come. He's not trying to get you attached to this life. I think a lot of us, we want God to do stuff in our lives, but really because we just love this life so much and we just try to make it perfect. And, and while we live in this gap, the way that God deals with us is he, in such a way that, that He's like stirring up our appetite for this ultimate fulfillment. Right? So there's hope in the gap. There's hope in the gap. Maybe you're experiencing relational pain. I know some of you, you're going back home for Christmas and it is not something you're looking forward to. There's this breakdown in your relationships with your family, maybe friends that are back at home, and, and, and just, just know that there's hope in the gap. And that hope may be seen in the here and now as God releases His grace and His mercy through you in ministering to your family or ministering to your friends. But even if He doesn't do that, there's hope because of what is to come. There's hope in the gap. It may be financial stressors. It may be struggles with sin, with addictions. It may be mental health challenges. Know that in the back of your mind, there should be this refrain as you're struggling in those things that hear God saying, Behold, I am making all things new. And He can do that now, and He does, but He's going to do it ultimately in the life to come. Have hope in that as you live in the gap. The other thing for a Christian to do, I think in light of the life that is to come, is to carve out a piece of paradise right here. It's, it's not going to be perfect. 
not in this life, but it is, is, is something that informs the way that we do life here. So, some of the ways that might play itself out. So, one is you join your local church. Like, this is what we're doing here. We're carving out a piece of paradise. We're gathering brothers and sisters who've experienced that living water together in community. And we're living out this little piece of paradise. It's never perfect. We're always struggling through our own sin and issues, myself included. But, but it is this little piece of paradise that the world can look in on and say, you guys aren't perfect, but there's something going on here. There, there's some kind of a, of a new life here that I want to know more about. And God uses it to authenticate the good news of the gospel. And so join in the local church. If not this church, another church. Like, like don't just be a consumer. Just, don't just be kind of a casual attender. Step in there and join your life with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you do that, go deep, right? So we've been talking a lot about discipleship groups over the last uh, couple of semesters. And this is, this is my discipleship group, one of my discipleship groups. And I think my discipleship groups are the best. But uh, we, we had a little breakfast uh, this Thursday on reading day just, just to kind of celebrate the semester and just look back at all that God had, had done. And, and I, I had known one of these guys, Xavier, uh, for a few years, but, but I just got to know Tenzai and just got to know Nate. And we, we spent the last semester looking at the Scripture and, and just doing life together, praying for each other. And uh, it's not been perfect because I'm their leader, but uh, it's been a sweet little taste of paradise, right? And, and so, but you got to go deep. you got to go deep. you gotta, you got to get in a room with two or three other brothers and sisters in Christ and open up your life and begin to grow as a disciple with other folks. You'll get a chance to, to do that uh, in, in the end of January. We'll start some up uh, again. And, and again, this is part of how you live in the gap, right? Like you're in a discipleship group, you're trying to learn how do I live in the gap? How do I deal with my personal issues? How do I relate with other believers? How do I deal with the world? All, all of that is being fleshed out in the discipleship group. And then thirdly, carving out a piece of paradise, uh, you, you seek to live out these kingdom values that you see God accomplishing in the life to come. You seek to live those out now. You, you let the life to come inform the way you live now in this life. You hear the Apostle Paul, I love this short little verse in uh, Philippians 121. Uh, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? So here's what he's doing. He's saying, I know for me to die is gain. He's looking forward to the coming kingdom. So in light of that, now I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to live for Christ. And so do that. As, as you're considering what we just learned about in Revelation 21, let that inform what you do now and what you do now as you live for Christ. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this about kind of the eternal perspective. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. 
the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. He can say things way better than me, right? So this aiming at heaven, keeping in mind the life that is to come, the paradise that we long for, the paradise that is promised to us, let that inform the way that you steward your life. All your time, all your talent, all your possessions, all your relationships, let all those be lived for Christ because you know that to die is gain. We're reminded of this reality every time we come to the table. Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, He is standing in the gap. It is it's such a, a gap kind of moment where He's being betrayed, he, He's being left by His disciples. And what does He do? He takes bread, He breaks it, He gives it to His disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup after He had blessed it, He gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so, We know that He wanted us to do this so that we would swing back and look toward the cross, remember what He had done. But He also says uh, in Luke, He says, I want you to do this until I come back. And so what He's saying is, church, I want you to do this while you're in the gap. While you're in the gap. Because you're going to need to be encouraged. You're going to need to be able to swing back and look at what I've done for you on the cross. You need to be able to swing forward and look at what I'm going to do for you when paradise is fully regained. All of that bought and paid for by His death on the cross. So This is what we're doing. When we're taking this bread and we're taking this cup, we are remembering what He's done. We're looking forward so that we might be encouraged in the gap. Let's pray. Lord, I know there are many in the room that, that need encouragement. 